Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. See that streamer? We're just in time. We have stumbled into a major crime. They got the girl off right. Now that's not nice. I think she is the subject of a sacrifice. Buddy, we're putting this party on ice. But first you know we really ought to read them their rights. Read them their rights. Read them their rights. Well, I'm here tonight to wrap about your rights. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. It is September 27th, 2021, a Monday. And after more than 25 years of accusations and a seven-week trial, R. Kelly has been found guilty of charges including sexual exploitation of a child, bribery, racketeering, and sex trafficking involving five victims. This is according to NPR. And he faces a possible sentence of 10 years to life. You know, this has been going on for a very long time and... It's good to finally see some justice being meted out on this creep. And one of the first people to break this story, and one of the people that made this happen, was journalist Jim Derogatis. Now this guy is a uh, an esteemed rock critic, an excellent journalist in his own right, and uh, co-host of Sound Opinions. He also wrote Let It Blurt, which is a fantastic biography of Lester Bangs. So I I recorded this interview a couple years ago after his book Soulless, The Case Against R. Kelly came out. And really that book is excellent. It's a masterclass in investigative journalism and in doing the kind of hard stories, ones involving sensitive subjects and lots of victims. And it's definitely worth checking out. So I am re-airing this interview that you might have not heard the first time around. We go down to the station. You're going to answer some questions. And have some refreshments. What is your full name? What were you doing on January 15th of this year? All we want is the truth, mister. What were you doing in the location in question? What is the purpose of your pagan organization? Whoa, you can't say nothing on me, Thomas. Yeah, I was the top music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. I worked there for 15 years. You know, I did all of pop music. Ebert did movies. Uh, it was great to have Roger Ebert as a colleague. Um, I had reviewed Kelly's fifth album, TP2.com, uh, you know, on the Tuesday of its release. Most record reviews ran on Sunday. They were shorter, but a big uh, local artist anticipated release would get a special Tuesday column. And um, I compared him to Marvin Gaye, uh, but noted that... Uh, you know, there was a weird dichotomy in his work. Uh, you know, super horny. I want to ride you like I ride my Jeep versus, you know, falling to his knees and praying to his dead mother in heaven. On the Wednesday before Thanksgiving 2000, a week and a half after the review ran, two weeks, um, I got a fax, an anonymous fax. It was a single page letter, uh, single spaced, a lot of detail. Dear Mr. Dear Goddess, you compared R. Kelly a couple of weeks ago to Marvin Gaye. Marvin had problems. They were nothing like Robert's. Robert's problem is young girls. Now, I had been at the Sun-Times uh, since 1991, worked there a couple of years. Kelly was just rising from singing basically on L platforms and street corners to become the dominant voice in R&B for a generation. I had left and gone to Rolling Stone for uh, a year, uh, moved out to New York and uh, uh, reviewed his latest album, the R album for Rolling Stone, uh, came back to Chicago. So he was a big local story, obviously, for any music writer. And there had always been these whispers, R. Kelly likes them young. And in 1996, he may or may not, uh, I was able to report that he definitively did, have married his 15-year-old protege, Aaliyah. You know, the facts had a lot of specifics. It mentioned Aaliyah. It mentioned the lawsuit that had been filed 
1996 after Aaliyah and settled in 1998. But I got a lot of hate mail at the Sun-Times. Anytime I wrote about hip-hop, it was like, that's not music, it's noise, with a sort of racist tinge. Mm -hmm. Anytime I wrote about the Rolling Stones, I was a fat, young, clueless punk. Anytime I wrote about Britney Spears, I was a fat, old man. You know, you get a lot of hate mail when you're the pop music critic. Um, I threw this fax in the pile, the slush pile of hate mail and press releases that I'd eventually throw out. So I went home and it was Thanksgiving and something about that fax bothered me, uh, throughout the whole holiday weekend. There were, there were two things. There was a tone of compassion. I'm sending this to you because I don't know where else to go, but if you're not the right person, I hope you will steer it to whoever is Robert needs help. Robert needs to stop. Uh, and also the specificity. So I went back in Monday and uh, read the facts again more carefully. And it mentioned that he'd been under investigation by the Chicago Police Department for some time. And I called CPD and uh, asked for the name, spelling it off the facts, Sergeant Chizuski. And the operator groaned and said, oh, we have nobody here by that name. And I almost hung up. And then I said, have you got anybody with a similar Polish surname in sex crimes? And she groaned again and connected me. And uh, there had been a couple of vowels missing in, in Sergeant Chizahuski's name. She picked up the phone, said uh, special investigations. I said, I'm calling from Chicago sometimes uh, about your investigation into R. Kelly. And she said, I was wondering how long it would be before somebody called me about that. I can't talk to you and hung up at which point I took the facts and went into the city editor's office. I was in the low rent features department next to the person who put together the comic strips and the horoscopes. And uh, he paired me with the legal affairs reporter who covered the courts, Abdon Palish. And we spent about six weeks of 18 hour days reporting the first story that ran December 21, 2000. What was kind of the substance of that? Like what did you determined? After six weeks of reporting, well, we that. we found that there had been uh, a 15 year old girl, Tiffany Hawkins, who he began sexual contact with in 1991. That that had lasted three years. That she had tried to kill herself. She filed a suit in 1996 after Aaliyah. She had been one of Aaliyah's backing vocalists from the South Side of Chicago. She saw Paris, Rome, Amsterdam, the world singing behind her friend. And Kelly had had sexual contact with her, with her friend Aaliyah, with five or six of her other underage friends. That lawsuit was settled in 98. It had never been reported. We also got some documents that had been sealed by the court about a settlement and an annulment with Aaliyah. We talked to other underage victims. Hawkins did not talk to us. And... Our lead was R. Kelly has abused his position of wealth and fame to pursue a pattern of illegal relationships with underage girls. And, um, yeah, I mean, we thought we had laid out that this man was a predator. This was a pattern of behavior. And uh, it, it did not stop. And very few, uh, no other reporters followed the story. And we stayed on it. Uh, we got a videotape of him with a girl to this day who's never been identified about two weeks after story number one. And in February 2002, uh, you know, after the first story ran December 2000, I got the 26-minute, 39-second videotape of him having sexual contact with and urinating in the mouth of a 14-year-old girl. We turned that over to police at the Sun-Times. And um, it was a decision by the Sun-Times editors and, and Abdin and I. And that got him indicted on 21 counts of making child porn. It took six years because of his incredible money and a judge who was exceedingly biased toward the defense to go to trial. And despite that almost half hour of horrifying evidence, uh, because the judge narrowed the case down to one girl on one videotape, not allowing the prosecutors to present what our story had been, a pattern of behavior. Um, he was acquitted in June 2008. 
and he never stopped this behavior. Not during the trial, not during the wait for the trial, and not after the trial. That's what Solis is about. That's what Solis, the case against R. Kelly, the book I never wanted to write, but which is necessary because people wonder how did this happen in full view of the world for almost 30 years since 1991 while this man sold 100 million records and earned a quarter of a billion dollars in income. How could this have happened? And that's what the book answers. I mean, is it simply the case that rich people in this country don't get prosecuted as long as they're making people money? Well, he was prosecuted. He was acquitted. Sure. But yes, money is at the root of it. Mm-hmm. Money uh, and every system in Chicago failing. The civil attorneys, the courts, the uh, churches, the schools, other journalists, every single system in Chicago failed these young black girls. And race is part of this. You know, many of the people I've interviewed, many colleagues have told me if it had been one white girl in the suburbs, this would have been a different story. And when I have written that nobody matters less in our society than young black girls, it only comes from having been told that by dozens of people I've interviewed, women. Was there a point where you kind of realized that, or what was the point where you realized that this wasn't just, you know, R. Kelly has a problem with young girls, but was actually, you know, a full-blown enterprise, you know, sex trafficking enterprise? Yeah, well, that's what the federal indictments now say. I mean, interestingly enough, Joe, um, almost everyone that Abdin and I interviewed, you know, we're two white reporters, uh, you know, ringing doorbells on the south and west sides, the black communities in Chicago. We are not part of that community, but we're not cops. Uh, almost invariably, I can count the exceptions on, on one or two fingers. We're invited into people's homes and people say, thank you for listening. No one ever wanted to listen. And, you know, they told us their stories of being hurt, of their loved ones being hurt. And, you know, the most common phrase that we heard in all of our reporting was never, you know, this monster, I hate him. It was brother's got a problem. Brother needs to stop. You know, you have to understand that his music had touched people's souls. And he was a hero who had risen from singing on the streets in in Chicago to become, you know, the dominant superstar in R&B. And people uh, felt compassion for him. I mean, it was interesting. You know, there was not abject hatred. There, there was always an understanding. Um, he was a victim of sexual abuse himself growing up. He cannot read or write, uh, do basic math. Um, you know, and even before those facts were widely known, thanks to his autobiography, Solar Coaster, My Diary of Me, and the interviews he, he gave, um, you know, people just felt compassion. They they wanted him to stop hurting young women. What is the, uh, as far as you're aware, what's the total of number of victims that? I know the names of 48 young women whose lives he's ruined. I have not talked to all of them. The majority I have, but I know the names of 48 women, and I believe there are many more. And when I say their lives ruined, you know, three of those women attempted suicide. Many of them uh, are haunted by what happened. I don't think it's an exaggeration. But it was always well-known in Chicago. If you talk to two or three women from the south or west sides of Chicago, they would tell you stories about Kelly cruising Kenwood Academy High School or Whitney Young High School or the Rock and Roll McDonald's or Evergreen Plaza Shopping Mall. You know, Everyone in Chicago's black community, women, uh, have these stories. If not them, they know of their best friend or their auntie or their sister or their cousin. And men knew as well, you know, and nobody did anything. Uh, That's sort of the horrifying thing. Uh, These girls didn't matter. It really just shows how we live in two different worlds, like black and white in this country. 
Yeah, and Chicago is a very segregated city. You know, the north side of Chicago may as well be a different universe than large tracts of the south and west sides. How many uh, investigations are going on right now? I believe there's three federal investigations. You know, there are two sets of federal indictments from the feds in New York and in Chicago. There's, uh, you know, a, a, a state of Illinois indictment. And there's a state of Minnesota indictment. There are 41 felony charges in all. Who who do you think has the strongest case? Do you have a sense of that? The case that I think is by far the heaviest against him. I mean, first of all, all of the charges, no one in the history of pop music has ever been charged with crimes this broad, this far-reaching. No one. And that's saying a lot given that men have been mistreating women in pop music since before Frank Sinatra and well after Ryan Adams, no one's ever been hit with this. The New York charges say that he is the head of a criminal enterprise. It's the RICO statutes with which they uh, prosecute uh, mobsters and gang leaders and drug dealers, uh, saying, you know, two of his uh, right-hand men are indicted as well. The federal government is saying that there may be superseding indictments, additional charges coming. Um, I think that that case, sex trafficking, uh, criminal enterprise, um, is is the heaviest. Um, the state of Illinois case is, involves four more victims. The federal charges from uh, that were filed in Illinois are substantive too. Apparently there are four additional videotapes of him having sex, sometimes with uh, more than one underage girl at a time. And the girl from the original videotape for which he was tried in 2008, she never testified. Her mother and father never testified. Fourteen witnesses, some of them her family members, best friends, teachers, uh, all testified and identified her. It now turns out, according to the federal indictment, that the mother, the father, the girl were paid off to lie to the grand jury and not testify in court. And the witnesses, this is part of the criminal enterprise, the witnesses who could not be uh, bribed uh, to cover for Kelly were sometimes uh, physically uh, harassed and intimidated, threatened. He is being held without bond it is likely that he will never breathe fresh air again. What about the status of when he was just recently arrested? Was Did he still have girls or women in his cult? Yeah, in July 2017, I reported a story that took nine months to report uh, for BuzzFeed News. And it was that he was holding at that point in July 2017 uh, six women uh, in situations that 14 witnesses on the on the record, 14 sources told me, uh, were, were brainwashed and that they were in a cult. And uh, that prompted the Mute R. Kelly movement of activists to come together in Atlanta about a week after that story ran. And it, it, it fueled the Lifetime documentary directed by Dream Hampton that premiered in uh, uh, January of, of this year, 2019. This, the cult story really activated uh, this whole story again. And, you know, it, it continued from what that first lead had been, a pattern of behavior. Why it has taken 20 years to get to this moment is is really what the book's about. And we were guilty, we felt guilty, Abdin and I, in, in the fall of 2000, the winter of 2000, But we were late to this story because it starts in 1991, victim number one, Tiffany Hawkins, and Aaliyah in 1994. And we we weren't on it until 2000. We we felt bad then. Uh, Today, it just seems, you know, all of the women I've spoken to since the indictments began to come, you know, uh, it's hard to say that they feel satisfied. They they all say this is too little, too late. When you think about how many women uh, would have uh, not been hurt right. had the lawsuit been reported in 1996, had he been convicted in 2008, um, 
you know, dozens of women were hurt, even after the slow wheels of justice began to turn. Am I correct um, in remembering that you interviewed R. Kelly after the Aaliyah story came out? Yeah, you know, I interviewed him twice. Once in person, it was a very brief conversation at a Grammy press conference. He had nothing to say. And I did not ask about Aaliyah. He was very surly. And I interviewed him uh, at length on the phone when You Are Not Alone came out. That's the song he wrote, recorded, and produced with Michael Jackson, his last number one hit. And we talked about that. And he talked about that song having been inspired by some stuff that happened in his life, uh, which was Aaliyah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I didn't press much deeper than that. That was, you know, 1998. You have to realize it's like no, you know, nobody understood the scope of this story until we really began reporting on it in 2000. When um the, the uh, cult brainwashing story, um, like those weren't words that, you know, that's what was told to you like when you hear words like cult and yeah. brainwashing it's i think a lot of people go well let's take a step back and <laughs> you know that's pretty I, serious I, allegations well, i was in the twilight zone i like you know this seems melodramatic this has got to be exaggerated this can't be true and then you talk to 14 people on the record willing to put their names and faces to the story and you know you realize this is stranger even than i thought at that point, 17 years on the story, you know, and you're seeing corroborating documents, you're seeing photos, you're seeing uh, video, you're interviewing these people who are talking to you for hours. And yeah, and, and then as I went back writing the book, I realized that people like Andrea Lee, his wife, uh, second wife after Aaliyah, um, you know, that his mother uh, her mother uh, had had told the Sun Times, my colleague Mary Mitchell, in the wait for trial, that she believed her daughter was brainwashed. And as I went back to these other interviews, you know, people have been using the word brainwashed here and there uh, for years, you know, for years. And it really was just the cult story in 2017 that made me realize how deep this history had been. And even then, I didn't really put it together until writing the book. Right, right. You know, there is a power that he has. Uh, There is a charisma. There is a domineering force. Um, He wants the women who are with him to follow his rules. And if they break his rules, uh, talk to other men, uh, do not ask his permission to go to the bathroom or eat, uh, have contact with their friends or family, He hits them and punishes them physically. And even as I went back to the settlement with Aaliyah, there was a, a, in exchange for non-disclosure agreements, neither would ever talk about it. Uh, There was an agreement not to pursue further legal legal action for physical abuse, Hmm. which at the time we thought was boilerplate divorce clause. Um, And it, you know, did he hit Aaliyah? You know, there are so many other women now who have said if they did not follow his quote unquote rules, the cult leader, uh, they were physically and mentally abused. And it it is a pattern. So how was Aaliyah able to kind of get away from him, you know, while so many other women? Yes, she had a very strong family structure, her parents and her uncle was Kelly's manager. Barry Hankerson. Mm -hmm. He was a serious player. He had been married to Gladys Knight. He had put plays on Broadway. He produced the uh, Tony Braxton uh, or managed Tony Braxton and the Winans, the gospel singers. You know, within 24 hours of that illegal marriage in 1994, um, Aaliyah had run back to her family told her mother and father, told her uncle, they were separated. The courts annulled the marriage. A settlement was signed. All of those records were sealed. And she never spoke about him or saw him again. Um, A lot of these girls 
and they were girls. They were underage. That's the right word. Um, did not have that kind of support, did not have allies. But there always were people close to Kelly who at some point developed a conscience after X amount of time watching this behavior, taking his money, abetting this behavior, left. You know, I believe that the facts came from somebody who had been close to him who left. Uh, his one road manager, close friend, Demetrius Smith, took Tiffany Hawkins to a lawyer to follow, file that first civil suit. You know, more than a dozen civil suits, I believe, four that I can document, uh, four more, five total that I can document, uh, followed. You know, girls did not believe because Tiffany Hawkins initially tried to get the state's attorney of Illinois to press criminal charges. She, they were not interested. She was rebuffed. She filed a civil lawsuit. The girls who sued him in civil court did not believe the justice system would help them, and they did not trust police. Would you have been able to take this story as far as you have without like the institutional support of Chicago Sun-Times? Like, If you were a freelancer or a blogger and you received that fax in 2000, would you have been able to pursue it? No, no, and I think this is key. I mean, you know, working with Abden, fellow reporter, working with Mary Mitchell, the columnist, having the editing and the legal vetting at the Sun-Times, the support system, was key to being able to do that reporting. And, you know, when I did the cult story, I had pitched, uh, I had worked for several months, uh, each with three other different news organizations, all of whom decided not to publish. And, you know, the additional reporting help and legal vetting and editing at BuzzFeed was crucial to getting that story out there. And I did another half dozen until January 2019 when everybody I worked with at BuzzFeed was laid off. Mm -hmm. So the constricting nature of journalism as a business is really difficult. Uh, to getting these stories told. You know, Ronan Farrow at The New Yorker and Megan Tui and Jody Cantor at The New York Times being able to tell Harvey Weinstein's story several months after my cult story. That ran July 2017. They ran October 2017 and really ignited the movement that Tarana Burke had started way back in 2006, Me Too. Um you know, it's great that those stories are out there. It's great that Julie K. Brown at the Miami Herald was able to write hard-hitting reporting about Epstein. Uh, it took a long time for the rest of the media to follow up all of those stories. And even then, it makes you wonder how many stories are not being told because other reporters don't have that kind of support. Do you think that it's necessary for a reporter to be part advocate when pursuing a story like this? That's a really complicated question. Um, advocate. No, I, I mean, I, I don't consider myself a political activist, an advocate in that sense. Um, on the other hand, the notion of pure objectivity, uh, that you are completely 100% down the middle, I think has always been a false construct. And I think that, obviously... Um, the new journalism, the movement of the 70s, Tom Wolfe, I think that alternative weekly journalism at its height in the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you know, there are many journalists who felt passionately about stories, and obviously they had opinions. Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein believed Nixon um, had fueled a cover-up and done dirty tricks to rig an election. Um they had to bend over triple backwards to prove that. So just because you have emotions and when you are sitting with young women who are doing the most difficult thing any woman can do, which is rip out their soul and tell you about their sexual assault, knowing full well that they will be called liars, opportunists, publicity hounds, um, that's a tremendous amount of courage. And you're going to feel emotions when you're doing that. The question is not, are you an advocate? The question is, are you being empathetic 
and, and telling the story as the victim deserves, while also being as fair as humanly possible to see what the other side is, to give every opportunity. You know, and Kelly has had a million opportunities to comment for everything I've ever reported. Uh, mostly he has not, except for blanket denials. And not a word has ever been corrected, retracted, clarified, or even threatened with a lawsuit. And I think any reporter, the best she can do is point to that and say, nothing has been disproven that I've reported. What were some uh, particular challenges um, that come to mind when you think about reporting this story? It's scary to deal with people who have money and power and no ethics. You know, the phone call, we know you have a daughter. Uh, the window that was shot out uh, in, my, in my home, the apartment I rented, the front porch. Um, and all of that, you know, gets other journalists excited and they like to hear those stories. And I, you know, it's, it's melodramatic because nothing I endured, none of the phone calls in the middle of the night for years, none of those vague threats is anything compared to the courage of the women who spoke to me because the amount of hatred they got in their churches, in their schools, in their communities. And then after the advent of social media, the avalanche of bitches, hoes, gold diggers, and, and a million times worse, uh, that Kelly's numerous defenders, who are still multitude today, um, you know, it should always be the focus on those women, because that nobody is going to make an accusation that they put their name to for fun. What about, like, the, um, the Baptist power structure in Chicago? Like, what role did they play, it play, in um, keeping R. Kelly? Well, you know, that horrifies me. You know, the day Kelly's indicted for the first videotape, Reverend Jesse Jackson tells the Sun-Times, there are bigger problems in the world than R. Kelly. And his number two behind the activist group, Operation Rainbow Push, uh, James Meeks, becomes Kelly's spiritual advisor and uh, accompanies him on television interviews and, you know, pray for Robert's soul and Robert's getting the help he needs. And, um, you know, there was a consistent defense of him by people in power, in the church, in the Baptist world, um, and even other Chicago celebrities. I mean, Common only came out recently with a quote that you know, we all should have known. Oprah has never spoken out against him. Um, you know, it, it, everybody in Chicago knew. So where were these other voices? Wait, what do you think is the impetus behind that kind of drawing the the wagons around R. Kelly? I think sexism runs deep, you know, in the black community and the white community, in, in, in all men. Um, these girls must have wanted it. You know, and um, uh, I don't think that the black community leaders, uh, you know, because he gets booked to perform a benefit for the Black Congressional Caucus. He gets named the Grand Marshal of Chicago's Bud Billiken Parade, which happens on the south side, raises money for kids going back to school for supplies, you know, after the trial. Um, You know, it's these girls didn't matter even to their black fathers and uncles, um, which is just horrifying to me. Um, We are willing to believe that black girls are fast and loose uh, in a way that that we don't accept that even for many white girls. But even then, you know, if you look at the federal statistics from the FBI, something like 3% of the accusations of sexual assault are false. But of 100 sexual assaults that happen, according to the feds, 40% are reported. The other 60 are never reported. So 3% of 40% of, it's a negligible number. People do not file false sexual assault 
complaints, and yet we overcompensate with everyone's uh, innocent until proven guilty. Hmm. We do not believe accusers. We didn't believe Dr. Anita Hill, and we didn't believe Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. So are we making progress? No. Is the conversation being had, thanks to Me Too? Yes. But man, society, black, white, American, period, has a long way to go. And we have a president of the United States of America who, despite having bragged of grabbing women by the you-know-what and many other sins, you know, 40% of this country applauds rather than being sickened. When you receive uh, something in the mail, like, or on your doorstep, you know, like the tapes, you know, like the videos of R. Kelly committing these crimes, like, what goes through your head? I mean, possessing child pornography is a crime, <laughs> you know, it must be, like, how do you handle that? Yeah, well, you know, I had heard from the girl in the videotapes aunt <laughs> that there was a tape on the streets. So when I was working at home and the phone rings and you know, a gruff male voice says, go to your mailbox, and there's this tape, I already suspected what it was. You know, uh, it's a feeling of dread. You know, it's like, you know, what's coming? You know, this is going to be difficult. It's going to involve a lot of reporting. It's going to be a lot of pain. I had to then sit and watch that video with the girl's aunt to confirm that it was her niece and how old she was. Um, yeah, it's the most difficult work I've ever done. So you're describing a tape of a girl being sexually abused by R. Kelly. Yes, yeah, the tape for which he was indicted on 21 mm -hmm. counts of making child pornography. You have to understand, at that time, pre-internet, you know, the closest analog was Tommy Lee and Pam Anderson. A video of them having sex in their in their house uh, was stolen when their house was robbed, and it you know gets bootlegged. And Tommy and Pam turn around and sell the copyright and make a couple of million dollars, according to Rolling Stone. This was not a good time. Kardashians, Paris Hilton sex tape. This was the horrifying document of a rape. You know, she has the disembodied look of a rape victim. She's an automaton being ordered by Kelly what to do. Dance for me, call me daddy. Open your mouth and he urinates in it. You know, it, it's horrifying. And how the jury could have seen it a dozen or more times during the trial and acquitted. I mean, it's rape culture 101. The girl didn't testify, the mother, the father didn't. And now we know it's because the feds say they were they were paid off to lie. Okay. And, um, and, and the tape was available on the street. Like, do you know how long it was available had been out yeah, there, there was this window, but, you know, the, the Sun-Times wrote about it on February 8th, 2002. It came to me on February 1, 2002. <laughs> and he was not indicted until June 2002. So between February 8th and June, uh, it was widely available for sale on street corners in Chicago, Atlanta, New York, Detroit, Los Angeles as a bootleg. Uh, it was after the indictment, the bootlegs disappeared because anybody selling it, much less possessing it or watching it, is committing a felony mm -hmm. once he was indicted for child porn. But it was widely available from February to June, and it should have been, because it was available for sale across the country, should have been a federal case to begin with. Mm -hmm. But the state of Illinois either fought to keep the case local or the feds were not interested. And I raised both possibilities in, in Solus. Uh, I don't know for sure why it never became a federal case. But the, at the indictment press conference, I asked that question. And the answer was, we'll see. And it took, you know, until <laughs> 2019 for it to become a federal case. But now with four additional tapes of the sort that I first saw in 2002, I mean, it's really going to be impossible for him to get out from under this now. Yeah, and you know, kind of the detail that I'm getting stuck on. Maybe you have some something to you know an insight into this is the fact that people were actually selling it on the street. You know, like people were seeing it. Yeah. You know, they wanted to own it. Like you talk about rape culture. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. That's that's yeah. it right there. Well, and black comedy. There's been several 
great columns written by cultural critics and fellow comics. You know, black comedy reduces it to a joke. Chappelle makes it the P tape, not the rape tape, the P tape. And Aziz Ansari and Cedric the Entertainer and Chris Rock and dozens of comics reduce it to a punchline with no consideration whatsoever for that 14-year-old girl. And, I mean, part of it, I think, comes, and this, this is interesting to you as a journalist, maybe. You know, newspapers do not name underage victims of crimes unless they're murdered, and they do not name sexual assault victims unless the woman presents her story and goes on the record. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Roshana Lanfair, the 14-year-old, in the tape when it was made in late 1998, early 1999, the fact that she was never named may have uh, contributed to us being able to dismiss her, us, not me, not Abdon, not the people who saw the tape, dismiss her as as something less than human. Mm -hmm. The court never heard from her. She testified to the grand jury, and now turns out she lied because she was being paid by Kelly. Uh, I mean, that girl has never had a life. She meets Kelly at 12 or 13, and she remained uh, at various points by his side until her early 30s. That's horrifying. You talk about a cult victim. You know, I I have a piece that's going to run in The New Yorker online today, I believe, about Manson. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Music being a tool that Manson used along with sex and LSD. You know, at, at various points, he had uh, three dozen young women, high school girls, college girls, following him, willing to do his bidding to the point of psychopathic murder. Uh, how does that happen, cult? You know, uh, it, it is bizarre. It is hard to fathom. It can easily be sensationalized. There's a great film. I don't count Quentin Tarantino's film as great. Uh, But Charlie Says by Mary Harron opened last year. And she's a feminist, director of American Psycho, director of uh, I Shot Andy Warhol. And she was a music journalist early on. She really underscores how powerful Manson's music was, along with the sex and the LSD that led to the brainwashing Uh, in getting these young women to follow him. And she focuses on the three who wound up on death row. Um, It's about those girls, you know. And, you know, I think we're just... And the screenplay was written by Genevieve Turner, who wrote for The New Yorker a few months ago about having grown up as a member of the Lyman family Mm -hmm. in Boston, a similar cult to Manson, minus the murder. You know, I think we really don't understand cults we're barely, you know, scratching the surface to come to an understanding, in part because some of them are so powerful. You know, you want to write about Scientology, you're inviting lawsuits. An interesting thing, you know, you mentioned Manson, um, R. Kelly, obviously. Um, even a lot of, you know, bigger groups like um, like the People's Temple, maybe not like predominantly women, but the inner circle are women. And there's some weird dynamic between a male cult leader and women. Yeah. And Koresh, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I think um, there's much to be studied by sociologists there. And, you know, all of the criminal sexual experts that I talk to, the psychologists, the psychiatrists, you know, have made the point that we do not understand pedophilia because it is such a toxic crime, uh, as well it should be, in our laws that science has not even been able to study it. The number of things that that the experts can say with certainty, uh, you know, where does this come from? How does it develop? Nobody knows. What they say with certainty is the pedophile does not stop. He can emerge from prison after 15 years and risk another 15 or 30 for five minutes with another underage girl. Uh, Would you characterize R. Kelly as a pedophile? That's the word that the experts who were most knowledgeable that I interviewed used. Um, you know, there's some debate in, in psychology about a febophilia mm-hmm. is the pursuit of teenage girls. Uh, but, you know, Dr. Damina Renshaw, Dr. Charmaine Jake Matthews, 
uh, Dr. Uh, Susan, uh, is it Susan Brown? I don't know. Check, check the book. Who was set to testify in the trial, but the judge wouldn't allow her. Um, Susan Cooper. Um, you know, they use the word pedophile. So I will yield to the experts. Sure. And but the- Kelly's, Kelly's, Kelly's targets were 12, 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. you know, which is an enormous difference from a six-year-old, but also an enormous difference from a 17, 18, 19-year-old. Right. Yeah. R. Kelly's music always strikes me as strange when he does this thing where he, like, goes on for 20 minutes, you know, and it's yeah, like... the 19-minute mock operatic uh, <laughs> confession, but he confesses nothing, admits nothing. Uh, some girls like to be spanked and... You know, mommy, daddy, if you have a problem, don't be pushing your daughter at me. And then he calls me out by name, Jim DeRogatis, or whatever your name is. You've been, you know, making your career off my name for 25 years now. His math is wrong. It's only going to be 19 in November. But uh, he promised to pray for me and my family, so thank you very much. <laughs> well, like, well, what did you think when you were listening to that and all of a sudden your name popped up? It's Twilight Zone, Joe. You know, it's yeah. like, what the hell? You know, but again, it's not about me. You know, whenever whenever I've been criticized uh, or or threatened, I mean, I think about Tiffany Hawkins and Patrice uh, Jones and Tracy Sampson and Lizette Martinez and Geronda Pace and Dominique Gardner. And, you know, many of the other women I know. You know, it's like, geez, you know, I'm a fairly high-profile journalist, um, you know, an associate professor at Columbia College Chicago. I have a weekly podcast radio show, you know, with half a million downloads a month and and 125 public radio stations. Um, You know, I'm a little hard to to come after. Um, Jeronda is not. Lizette is not. You know, and so the courage that they showed in speaking, uh, you know, go ahead, sing about me. And you're, um, when you broke the brainwashing cult story, is that, just refresh my memory, that's what led to the surviving R. Kelly? That runs, my story runs in BuzzFeed July 2017, followed uh, just a month later by Jerhonda going on the record with me in BuzzFeed. It took five years for her to decide to tell her story. She had met him when she was a 15-year-old high school sophomore cutting class to attend the trial because she was such a fan. And he began sexual contact with her a couple of months after the acquittal when she was 16. Um, I think the one-two punch, it's literally the first story, July 2017, a week or two weeks later, leads to Mudar Kelly. Mudar Kelly can yet Tisha Barnes and Oranike Odele at the top of that group going after his primary source of income, uh, which is live performance, uh, you know, becomes a national story, the national coverage and the cult story fuel lifetime and Bunham Murray, the same production company that brings us keeping up with the Kardashians and the real world, uh, you know, to think that there's a story there. You know, when Surviving R. Kelly ran and broke every viewership record for Lifetime in January 2019, um, you know, there was no one, almost no one, in six hours of docuseries that I hadn't interviewed. You know, it was, uh, Dreamhampton was not connected with the project Mm -hmm. initially when they approached me and I declined to take part. Um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for dream and, and a friendship now. Um, if she had called, I might have said yes. Uh, everything that was good about it was Dream Hampton, and the things that were cheesy are but a Murray. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but the power of hearing these women tell you their stories. I had been doing that for two decades, one-on-one, hours at a time, them crying on my shoulder, and now America got to meet some of those women. And I think that the visual media had a tremendous impact. There are things that you can do as a podcaster, a serial storyteller. There are things that television does. And then there are things that only long-form print journalism can do, which is the complications, the many myriad complications of 
30 years of these crimes. It takes long-form printed reporting to do that, I think. Yeah, and persistence and um, the support of an organization, uh, certainly. The importance of that can't be understated. No, no, no. Do you have any idea who sent you that initial fax? Um, Abden and I came to believe it was an older church lady who had worked in Kelly's office and left in disgust. But we never succeeded in finding her. She did not want to be found. And uh, to this day, I can't say definitively. We had what we thought was an address. It turned out to be a mailboxes, et cetera, store. Mm-hmm. She had closed her box, moved on without a forwarding address, and we never found her. Um, nor do I know for certain who steered the tape toward me, but there were copies floating on the street, not in the number yet of when it started to be bootlegged, but there were copies out there, and there were people who felt that Kelly had done very wrong by their loved ones. Sparkle, whose niece, Roshona Landfair, is on the videotape. Barry Hankerson, who quit as Kelly's manager in 2000, but he was Aaliyah's uncle. There were people who, you know, may have made phone calls that said this tape should go to this reporter, but I do not know for certain to this day. Well, thanks, Jim. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Is there... Anything else you think we should, uh, You any thoughts you want to leave us with or anything? You know, the only thing I would also say to you, Joe, you started by saying, you know, how do reporters do difficult stories like this? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not rocket science. You listen. You listen. And, you know, it, it has been my experience that everybody has a story to tell. Most people who haven't committed crimes are eager to tell that story. And everybody has a different key to unlocking that story. But the two biggest assets any journalist has, the two biggest assets I've had is patience. It took nine months for Dominique Carter to decide she was going to go on the record. It took five years for Johanda Johnson at the time, now Pace, to decide she was going to go on the record. Uh, patience and listening. And that doesn't mean... Uh, you, you don't ask questions. You do, and you have to ask difficult questions. But it starts by just listening to somebody.